Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined by Chris Bouguet. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you, Rachel? I'm feeling good. I'm getting ready for a big trip on Friday. Where, where are you going? I'm going to the Grand Canyon. So I'm, um, I've been trying to get a permit to hike to Havasupai Falls, which is an Indian reservation in the middle of the Grand Canyon. I think it's like a 10-mile um, hike in. And I'm really nervous for the hike out because it's all straight up switchbacks for like 10 miles, especially the end. Um, but yeah, so I'm going down there camping for a few days and I'm, I'm really pumped. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I've never been to the Grand Canyon too. I've flown over it, but uh, no, I've never been. So have a great time. It sounds like it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really pumped. And you're doing something cool on Friday too. Where are you going? Yeah, I'm flying out to Connecticut and I'm presenting at a conference for students with autism and I'm going to be presenting on AAC. So it's a one day trip, fly out in the morning, present uh, during the day and then fly back in the afternoon. Ooh, that's like a, a whirlwind tour. B busy Friday. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be great, though. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, And we'll be on opposite. Well, I'll be in Connecticut and you'll be in the Grand Canyon. Yeah, exactly. Autism and AAC, that's my jam. <laughs> that's what I was I know, I know. <laughs> and definitely, you know, I'm going to be telling people about the podcast there. So. Oh, yeah, I know. It's so cool. Like every time I go to a different conference or a different speaking engagement, I'm always meeting people who listen to the podcast. So it's one of the first questions I ask, you know, because I have to give my financial disclosures and I talk about, you know, talking with tech and I say like, has anybody heard of the podcast? And I always get people raising their hand. And I remember, um, I guess this is Asha. The podcast had just started and no one had heard of it, <laughs> as is true with all things that are, you know, brand new. But um, it's really cool to see, to see how it's grown. Now, at this particular conference, I think I'm expecting to have more parents and family there than, than clinicians and, and teachers and, and uh, speech therapists, uh, which is great. I'm really looking forward to, to speaking to more parents. Yeah, no, that's like a, a really great audience too, because I, there's a lot of really, um, really great episodes for parents. Actually, I have a blog article on my website um, that I think it's the top top five uh, talking with tech episodes to listen to if you're a parent, um, because you know some of the things are very technical that we talk about on this podcast. But there's a few episodes that I feel like are really powerful, um, and actually, it's a lot of the ones that we've interviewed parents um, of children who use AAC. Um, so anyway, I think the parent perspective is really important and, um, yeah, we wanted to, to talk a little bit about something that's going on, uh, on social media right now, uh, uh, an AAC buzz. Um, and it kind of talks about that parent perspective. On April 23rd, there was an article that came out, uh, by Kathy Binger. So Kathy Binger is a, uh, kind of a famous name in the world of AAC. I think she's a professor in, uh, New Mexico, uh, university professor. She's one of the people that have worked on the, the impact model, which of course we've talked about in the past, uh, developer of one of these strategies called the wrap, wrap, wraps strategy, which is read, ask, answer, prompt, which we could talk all about uh, in a different podcast episode. Um, but she, she, she's a, a famous name in the field. And the, the name of the, uh, her, her article that came out is Families Need Guidance Before Buying a Communication App for Autism. Uh, 
And the article goes on, it kind of explaining that, uh, and of course, we'll, we'll, we'll link to the article in the show notes. But many times what happens is that uh, parents will get marketed to, and they will go buy an app thinking that it'll be kind of a quick fix. That this, well, oh, my student's not talking, so I'll buy this app, and then they'll talk. And, and, uh, and she tries to explain in the article that uh, it's a much more nuanced and much more layered, much more complex, as we all know, situation than just go out and buy an app, and that will solve the problem. Uh, I, I feel like that's the heart of what she was getting at. Uh, but the title of, the, of it, Families Need Guidance Before Buying a Communication App for Autism, um, and then some of the lines in the article. So for instance, uh, I'm going to quote from it here, uh, the very last paragraph. Uh, she writes, families will no doubt continue to hear compelling promises of quick fixes. Educators, medical professionals, and clinicians should do all they can to connect families to AAC experts and secure an assessment before investing in a particular app. Even after identifying the right app, regular instruction on and personalized attention to all aspects of communication are still required to help children meet their full potential. Uh, and so in that final paragraph, that's the final paragraph of her post, uh, it sort of calls to this traditional notion of that there's some person, this expert, that will know the exact answer for your child. And if you just connected them to that right person, that right person will do an assessment and bequeath to you what that app should be or what that system should look like. And I think if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, uh, you know that we have been talking about that that is one model, but that there are other models for acquisition of, of an AAC app and of a, of a more global solution. You know, we've talked about the specific learning system approach as, as one uh, potential gateway into people getting a, a communication system. And then what this article also kind of kind of raised the hackles of some people was that notion that parents need to do this. And if they don't do that, then they are doing something wrong, right? And uh, there, there's a, a growing number of parents that feel like, no, I went to a speech therapist. I went to an expert. I did this. And they I thought they were an expert and they were supposed to be the expert and they didn't point us on the right path. Uh, we had to go out and do it on our own. Um, and we had to do our own research and we had to, and please don't discredit all that work that we've done by saying that this, that, that, that you need to do it this one way. New models are, are uh, popping up and becoming um, uh, something that is just as valuable as that first traditional model. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I kind of cringed when you read expert. Like, I think that just like our work on this podcast and how, you know, my, my perspective on AAC has really evolved, I think, in the last couple of years since we've been doing this podcast. Um, I don't like saying, you know, you need an AAC expert because like you said, it lends itself to here's this one person who has the, the solution right? And like, we know it's not that. We don't always have the right answer and we need collaboration. We need input from a team. Um, and I would argue that there's no greater input that we need than a parent's input because parents know their children best. Parents know, you know, 
so many things that it would take us years to, you know, get to a level of understanding of a child um, to really understand, you know, what's going on, especially with kids with complex communication needs, because, you know, they're not communicating. Um, they have a hard time communicating that. And so parents know all the nuances. They know like, oh, you know, that sound means this, or that gesture means this. Um, and so I just think it's so important to, to not discredit parents, uh, but to really value their input. Um, and think of the AAC process as a chance to collaborate with professionals. The other thing is, yes, you know, is guidance from a speech language pathologist that has experience in AAC important? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that it's important regardless of the app that you choose, you know, having that guidance is, is key. But the reality is, parents don't always have access to clinicians who have experience. Um, so then what? You know what I mean? Like, are we just going to sit there and say, well, you need an AAC assessment um, from an experienced clinician before you can teach your child how to communicate using technology? Um, no, I would argue no. Um, I was just uh, speaking at Pennsylvania Speech and Hearing Association's conference, and I just added a new slide to my presentation. Um, I used a Bitmoji. I might have already talked about this on the podcast, but I just love it. Um, Chris, you like totally turned me on to using Bitmojis when we did our ABCs of AAC presentation. And I just like, people love Bitmojis. Um, but I have a Bitmoji on the screen and it's me dropping a mic. And it says the wrong AAC in air quotes is better than no AAC. And what I mean by that is, you know, I hear these, these parents saying they've been on a wait list to get an AAC assessment for eight months. Um, you know, we, we can start using AAC because so many of these systems are so robust that they can do what we need them to do. Now, yes, like if we do feature matching and all these things, we might be able to find a system that has, you know, better features than another one. But the reality is like, let's not stop and wait for this expert to come in. Like, let's get started. You know, and, and this notion of the wrong AAC, I feel like that's what holds clinicians back who, you know, maybe they don't have experience with AAC and they think like, oh, like I don't want to make the wrong decision um, or parents, I don't want to make the wrong decision. For me, you know, starting with AAC and, you know, perhaps choosing a system that there's another system that's better, but it just get started. Let's just start teaching language because the reality is, like you said, there's no quick fixes. And I feel like this article really highlights that. Um, I think that notion is, is hard because parents see like a Dateline special and a child was locked in and then they get a device and all of a sudden they're writing, you know, beautiful like Shakespeare prose. And we're like, that's not the reality. The reality is we put a device in front of a child and we have to teach the language behind using that device. So not only do we have to teach the mechanics of AAC, but we have to teach the language, how to use the words. Um, and so it's not a quick fix, but I just, I don't know. I have, a, I have a, clearly a lot to say about this. I think at the end of the day, we can't discredit parents for trying to help their children to communicate. No, exactly. You touched on so many important points there. One of them being, what do you do? Wait? You put your kid on a waiting list and then sit around and go, yeah, okay, I guess I'll wait for this person to come do an assessment for a year and a half or two. Uh, and what do we do in the meantime, right? No, that's not a good solution. And then many of the parents that uh, responded to this uh, particular article were saying, well, I did go to pe people. I did go to someone who I thought was an expert and they did not actually point my kid in the right direction. They did not uh, point us as a family in the right direction. They weren't presuming potential. Uh, they were being gatekeepers and they were saying, 
now that now that I know more about AAC from a parent perspective, they might say, you know, now that I've gone and learned, I'm many years into this journey. I recognize that the people that were giving me advice were giving me bad advice, right? And so, as a parent, there are so many more resources out there today. Our podcast, for instance, is is an example. Blog posts, communities, communities that we're not even aware of. I'm sure of that exist that are parent only, no professionals allowed. That can get that people can share resources and get information and become more knowledgeable, right? So one size does not fit all for AAC. Well, one size does not fit all for models of how to acquire AAC as well. Uh, there's lots of different avenues to success. You know, I think the biggest thing is why not just get started? You know what I mean? Like that's the beautiful thing about iPads now. Access to speech generating apps is it's instantaneous. You can, a parent can go on and buy it, which I realize sometimes, you know, they, they need guidance. And, you know, we come in as speech language pathologists and we're like, Oh, like maybe I wouldn't have done it that way. But at the end of the day, you know, parents are just trying to do the best that they can. And like you said, I I can't tell you how many situations I've experienced with SLPs, um, you know, who are experts and I'm putting that in air quotes for, you know, our listeners who can't see us. Um, And they're saying, oh, well, you know, they haven't gotten us to a certain level of pecs. So, you know, we can't do a high tech, you know, device. I mean, it's like there's a miss out there about what's going on and what's best practice in AAC. So even if you might have access to an AAC, you know, expert, maybe that they, they don't, you know, they're, they're still gatekeeping. Like you said, they're still limiting a child's potential. Um, so it's just, there's a lot of things that we need to think about in this, in this area. And, you know, I'm all about the parents that are on the blogs, listening to the podcast, learning, because those are the parents that actually are motivated to make real change happen. Those are the kids that like, you start seeing them, you give them the guidance, right? And if you, you kind of nurture that guidance and you really respect a parent's point of view, those are the kids that make rapid progress because parents already know, like, I don't have to go in and teach what a core word is. Um, you know, parents are like, I know, you know, I kind of know generally speaking what to do. Here are some like troubleshooting questions that we can kind of go over. Um, what, what's a more of a long-term plan? How does typical language development happen so that we can, you know, have this really strong game plan going forward? Um, so it's like, I, I want the parents who are like, you know, seeking out the information on their own through, you know, all these resources, um, because those are the parents that are, you know, really motivated to change happen. Yeah, I feel like one of the one of the models that uh, that it, it is taking hold, and I think I know that I'm sort of an advocate for it. I know we've mentioned it on the podcast. Is is using some sort of framework to have that decision making process so that everybody has a voice and we come to a shared perspective. You know, uh, we've talked about the set framework before on this podcast: the the student, the environment, the task, and the tools developed by Joy Zabala. Uh, meaning, you look at the student, you look at the environment, you look at the tasks to develop the tools. And a traditional assessment has a one person trying to determine all of that. That one person looks at the student, the environment, and the task to develop the tools. Now we're talking about an an AAC assessment where the team is looking at all of those aspects to come to a shared idea of what that tool should be. And that new model doesn't mean having a traditional assessment. It means working as a team, like you said, uh, where parents can bring in their input with the research and their experience that they've had and their connections with other parents uh, and other professionals. Same thing with us as, a, as professionals. We bring to our table the experience and the research that we know with our affiliations with other professionals and our organizations that we belong to. And then all the other disciplines that 
that bring in their aspects as well. And when we put all that together, we're going to have the best choice. I think that's even better than having one expert that thinks they know it because we've talked about this too. If you brought somebody to two different AAC experts and did an assessment where they, I could still see the same kid that went to two different experts getting two different results, meaning that that assessment doesn't necessarily mean that it would be the same if you took it to 10 people. You know, you probably get five people that say it should be uh, app number one and five people that say it should be app number two. And what does that mean? It just makes it so much more confusing for parents. So working as a team and collaboratively deciding seems to me, that feels right to me as the, as the approach. It feels right to me. And like, I'm going to be totally honest here. I don't like having all that pressure. Let's release that pressure valve on me because it's like, I only have the experience that I have. And I don't know, typically when I'm doing an assessment, I don't know the child that well. I only have had several interactions with them. So it's like, I don't want all the pressure of being like, ah, Rachel, she's going to tell us the magical device that will be perfect for this child. Like, no, that's not the way it works. And I don't want it to work that way. I want input from everyone. And I think that, you know, not only does that help give you more information to make a great clinical decision, but it also just makes people feel like this is a team. This is a team environment where my input matters. And I think especially when we're thinking about parents, their input matters. I would argue more than anyone else's. And I think that, you know, we go into these meetings with our experience and sometimes, you know, speech language pathologists, like we have an ego and we really need to set our ego aside in these meetings. You know, there's nothing that kind of grinds my gears more than when, you know, a speech therapist thinks that they know best for someone else's child. Um, yes, we have experience. Yes, we have, you know, a really solid understanding of language development and, um, you know, the technicalities of AAC especially, but um, nobody knows what's best for their child more than parents, nobody. Um, and so I think it's really important to remember that when we're in these meetings. Yeah, I mean, maybe the grandparents, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, to, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And to Kathy's article, she has many, many awesome points in, in that article. I mean, there should be a buyer beware. You shouldn't be marketed to, right? You should be cautious about uh, what you're selecting. You don't want to just get the first thing you see and go, oh, maybe that'll help my kid and go off and buy it. You know, uh, there should be some more research and diligence behind uh, behind that. And she makes all those points. And she also makes the point that, uh, yeah, that it is not a quick fix. You know, AAC is not a quick fix. It is more like, you mentioned a slide that you have with the dropping the mic with a bitmoji. And I have one in one of the presentations I do where I have a little green arrow that says AAC is like this, not like this, and a red arrow pointing to a lock. You know, it's not like a lock on a door, but people will be marketed to, like you said, uh, some sort of CNN article or something, or some sort of uh, TV report, and it's painted like a lock. You know, a one-time thing, one person can grab that key and just unlock the door and open it. And what I have my little green arrow pointing to on the slide is it's more like building a house. You know, where there's a team of people that bring in their different perspectives. There's someone who uh, who brings in the wood, someone who brings in the nails, someone who brings in the, the carpeting, and, and someone else brings in the electricity and the plumbing. And you put those all together. It's not a one-time thing. Building a house takes a while and it's never done. Meaning once it's built, it feels like it's done because another team comes in, the family, but then you're doing maintenance on your house. You know, no one, anyone who's ever owned a house knows the work on the house never is over, right? And that's what it feels like when you're AAC is it's a team that is putting it together. It takes a long time and it never ends. Yep. 
Absolutely. And I think the other thing is it takes time. You know, it's, it's not this like quick thing. It's a marathon, not a sprint, which I feel like we've said so many times in this podcast, but yeah, I think that those are really important and, um, and I think that those are valuable things. And, you know, Kathy Binger's article is really valuable in that, you know, let's strive for best practice, right? Let's strive for, you know, having a situation where we do an AAC assessment and, you know, we help guide parents. And I think it's good to have these perspectives because I think they're both valuable, right? I, I can see the parents perspective. I can see, you know, the professional perspective, um, you know, especially when you come in and you see an app and you're like, oh, yikes, like, I don't, I've never even heard of this app. And, you know, and I think what we could probably do is we could help try to educate what are, you know, universal features that we really want to see when we're thinking about robust AAC. Because I think that's the key, right? It's like, it's, it's, it's less about the specific app and it's more about like, okay, here are like six to seven things that I absolutely need to see. Um, you know, I need to see the ability to change grammatical markers because one day we're going to, we're going to need those plural S's and, you know, those ING's. I need to see the ability to type because one day I want to have, you know, the ability to say whatever you want to say through typing, through literacy. Um, you know, I want to support motor planning. Like there's all these things that I feel like, you know, if you have that checklist of, okay, this is what makes a robust AAC app. Um, you know, it really is less important about the specific system. So Rachel, you know what that is reminding me of is the AAC agreements, which we have an episode on, but uh, there's a whole new website. It's bit.ly slash AAC agreements website. And it is an attempt to try and outline those universal truths, have a checklist, like you said, of what should we be considering when we are thinking through what, what an AAC experience would look like? What, and what is that universally for everybody? Yeah, no, I love that. And we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, this has been such a great discussion. I like, I can, I can tell we're both really passionate about these things. One more point I want to make is that um, you use the term best practice uh, a couple times. And I think that is a, a term we use quite a bit. And I think most people, when they hear that term best practice, it's like a static thing. Like if, if well, once I learn what that best practice is, then I'll know what that best practice is. And then I can do that best practice. But I would challenge people to think that best practices is a fluid evolving thing that, that is growing at all times. Meaning back to Kathy Binger's article, best practice at one time was to seek out an AAC expert and do a assessment. I'm not sure that is still best practice. It is a practice, but with these evolving models, I wonder if there aren't other best practices or, uh, again, uh, what's mentioned on the uh, AAC agreements website, better practices, you know? Uh, so I just like to think of that best practices is something that's evolving. It's not static. You know, what this reminds me of, Chris, so before we hopped on recording, uh, I was complaining to you about Apple and how I like was trying to find my headphones and I couldn't plug it into my computer because it was like, you know, my iPhone headphones and I was about to get a new Mac and they're, you know, they got rid of the USB. And you know what Chris said to me, what'd you say, Chris? 
I said, well, think about back in the day when we had three by five floppy disks. And at some point, someone had to say, well, we're not going to use those anymore. We're going to use CD-ROMs. And then someone had to say, well, we're not going to use those anymore. We're not, we don't even need that drive anymore. It, it evolves. Exactly. And so I think the key there is we need to be open-minded, right? It's not, best practice is not something that just stays as is, right? We learn more information. Our, everything changes. We're constantly evolving as, as people, as a society. And so best practice changes too but it's always uncomfortable, right? We like to know, we like to stick with what we know. I like to stick with, you know, the USB drive, but the USB drive is smaller and could potentially be better. So I think the key is just constantly reminding ourselves to be open-minded. So speaking of parents as advocates, I've been enraptured with Carly's interview uh, since I wasn't there to, to be part of it. And we have part two coming up right now. Yeah. And it's just like to hear her story about how dedicated her parents were, you know, they were by her bedside, they were, um, you know, interpreting all of her kind of nonverbal cues and gestures because, you know, she didn't have the ability to talk. It's so wonderful to hear, um, you know, parents being advocates. And she talks specifically about specific treatments that like she didn't want to get and she did want to get. And, you know, her mom was by her side, you know, doing research for her and all these things. So, um, it's just like, it's such a powerful story. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear uh, the the end of that interview. Yeah, we were, we were, we were laughing during that interview. We were both crying. I mean, it was just um, really powerful to hear her story um, and how it shapes our practice. And I think it's stories like this that really help us think through the lens of the clients that we work with. So there are a few instances where she does swear and we've kind of gone back and forth and trying to decide, do we cut it? Do we keep it? Um, in the honor of really trying to respect her expression, um, we've decided to keep it. So um, just beware that there are some swear words in there. And um, if you have you know kids in the car, definitely uh, wait to listen to this episode um, until you're not with your kids. We don't want those little ears hearing anything that they shouldn't. So um, without further ado, let's listen to part two of the interview I did with Carly Stoltenberg. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mito, joined today by Carly Stoltenberg. Let's just start off by you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your story. Sure. Um, well, like you said, my name is Carly, and I have been a speech pathologist for about 24 years. And two years ago, I was diagnosed with something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I ended up on a ventilator and a feeding tube. A lot of times when I was on the ventilator, I felt that I didn't have a voice. 
and people would dismiss me. People would tell me I, I didn't know what I was talking about, that certain things that were happening couldn't possibly be happening. And then they would eventually discover that I was right. That even happened once I was off the ventilator and able to talk again. I had therapists and doctors that didn't listen to me and did things to me that were painful. And I remember crying and telling my mom, I feel the same way I felt when I was on the ventilator, that I don't have a voice and that people aren't listening to me. And I think that this is this is something that I think about a lot when I'm talking to parents, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, I always tell parents, like, you know your child better than any therapist. Mm-hmm. So sure, like, you know, as clinicians, we can go and we can do an assessment. We can recommend something like a device or a certain treatment approach or a certain target or goals. Right. But at the end of the day, like parents know their their children best and to follow that intuition I think is really really important and as SLPs we need to advocate for that like we Mm -hmm. need to encourage that um you know there's nothing that I feel like is worse than a professional who who's like I know the answer I know the golden answer um you know because first of all there is no golden answer typically um and also like we really need to take into consideration like these are people's lives like these are you know children and adults it's their lives and um really working with families um, about what their goals are and what they want to see happen. Absolutely. And um, I have two points that I want to make based on what you said that brought to mind. One is um, the fact that people know their children best. They know their own bodies best, whatever. Um, I talk to clinical fellows all the time. I do a lot of mentoring for clinical fellows and I tell them that they have the same knowledge and skills that I have. I've just had a little bit more experience, but that I don't know everything in this field. And again, it's so important to recognize that we don't know everything. And that even if we've worked with a hundred children with autism, we might have a certain bag of tricks that we pull from that we typically use, but the next one that comes through our door those bag, that bag of tricks might not work. And then you need to consider, well, maybe I need to talk to someone else and get someone else's ideas. Even though I have the patient perspective, it's really important for me to tell you again that I'm not an expert. I would never assume that I know more than anybody else, even though I've had a feeding tube, even though I have been on a ventilator, because every patient's case is different. And that's what I'm really learning about Guillain-Barre, that you know, I had heard so many things while in the hospital about, well, this is what happens, this is what happens. And everybody that I've met with Yambere, their situation is presented differently. Mm-hmm. Some haven't even had their feelings start in their feet. Um, everybody recovers to a different extent. And going back to the fact that, you know, they talk about 80% of people making a full recovery, I think that in a way it's sort of true. In all the people that I've mentored, everybody has recovered differently, but I think we've all recovered back to a a version of our former pre-GBS self. Um, And what I mean by that is I've always been type A. And so I've always been someone that wants to do things on my own and I'm multitasking and, you know, not wanting help. And that's how I've recovered that I remember there was a time when I didn't have the hand strength to even open the tinfoil that's on the top of a yogurt. And so my mom was like rushing to do it for me. And I said, mom, I can do it myself. And so I struggled, struggled to try to get that tinfoil off, couldn't do it, grabbed a knife and cut around the top of it. And I said, there you go. I did it, you know? And so I did, I, even when I couldn't have, I didn't have the strength to pull that tinfoil off. I still was back to my normal self. And I've seen other people 
who I have to remind them that I'm going to recover differently than them because I was different than they were pre-GBS. That 16-year-old kid that I told you about that was in the hospital with me, two years later, he's still in a power wheelchair. And when I look at what his life was like pre-GBS, he was actually in prison for armed robbery. And so his life was very different than my life. He had dropped out of high school. When he finally got out of the hospital, he was released from prison for a variety of reasons that I don't need to go into, but he went back home. And I remember seeing him at outpatient rehab for, you know, several months and talking to him. And I said, you know, I, Hey, I heard that they want to try to get you back into high school. And I said, aren't you excited about that? And he said, no, he goes, I don't want to go back to high school. He said, maybe I'll do online, but I'm not interested. And I thought, oh my gosh, like for me, prior to GBS, if I was that kid's therapist, I would have been like, yes, you do. Come on. You want to go back to high school. But he didn't have that motivation before he got sick. And he's perfectly content sitting in his room on his computer, texting his friends and playing video games because that's what he was doing before GBS. Where to me, that would not be a full recovery for me. I wouldn't want that to save my life, you know? Mm -hmm. But for him, he's content there. And I think it's very important that obviously we all have goals, you know, OTPT speech goals when we're working with our clients and our students, we're obligated to have those goals either insurance or Medicare or our IEPs, you know, bind us to having these goals for our clients and our students. But for me personally, I remember that my therapists all had goals for me and I would like blow through those goals. And if you look at that, like in the way they rate patients in terms of the amount of movement that they have, for example, on a scale of one to five, and if you're a five, then you're recovered. I was recovered in their eyes. But what I found out is that I had my own personal goals, especially once I got home from the hospital. When I started to get back to my normal life, I realized I still had some limitations. Um, one of which was, you know, my my peer mentor told me she couldn't wear heels anymore, and I was like, "Screw that! I'm wearing heels again." So especially I remember, at five, especially at five four. five four, and I had a whole closet full of heels. heels and I'm like, yes, I'm like, I, I'm gonna wear these shoes again. So I started going to the gym and like working on my ankle strength and my calf strength to be able to wear heels again. I had dropped a bottle of a jar of coconut oil on the floor one time. And, you know, at that point I had, I had been able to squat, but I realized I couldn't sustain a squat to be able to actually clean coconut oil off the floor because it's not just squatting and picking it up. It's squatting and sustaining it and cleaning it. So I'm like, okay, back to the gym. You know, one of the, the last steps towards my independence was being able to drive again. My parents still had to live with me for several months after I came home because I couldn't drive myself to my therapies. I couldn't get my kids to school. And I was like, felt like a caged animal that I was like, I cannot stand sitting in the, you know, the, the front seat of the car or the passenger side and having my 80 year old dad drive me around, which is petrifying in, in and of itself. But I want to drive my own car. The last thing that came back for movement was my ankles. And I just, once they started moving, I just kept doing the motion over and over again of what it would feel like to use an accelerator or the brake. And once I was able to drive again, I was like, see you later, mom and dad. You know, thanks so much for everything, but I, I want my life back. And I've continued to have that list of personal goals um, that again, even though I, I look and I'm back to being what people think is normal, I've always had my own list and I started 
actually, I had started posting on Facebook. One of my friends had created a personal Facebook page for me to help document my recovery and my journey because my parents were just too tired to field questions from people. So when I was recovered enough to be able to hold my phone in the hospital and start documenting myself, I started going on and basically journaling, you know, the feelings I was having or different things that would, would happen or memories that were triggered that would trigger like stories that I wanted to tell. And one of those things was putting my list of my goals up and being accountable to all my Facebook friends and family of these are the things I want to do to get back to my life. I think it's really important that we talk to our patients about those personal goals in addition to whatever we're required to have for Medicaid or insurance or IEPs. And really just like fostering that sense of community. I feel like, you know, it's so isolating a lot of times when you feel like you're the only person or you're the only parent that has a child with this, you know, genetic syndrome or whatever it is. And so really like part of our, part of our scope of practice should be trying to, you know, facilitate that for our patients and our clients. Absolutely. Um, And that's why I do what I do in terms of keeping that Facebook page active or talking to the other patients or talking to grad students, other professionals in the field, because my only exposure to GBS prior to meeting people in person was, I remember somebody showing me a video of a girl on Facebook who had had Guillain-Barre years before. And I'm, she, I remember looking at this video and thinking, oh my gosh, that's me. Here, this girl in a ventilator, she had dark hair. She even looked like me in my mind. And it was so scary to see her going through all that stuff and watching the pain and everything in her. But as the video progressed, it showed her at the very end doing PB90X and like physically fit. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's going to be me. I'm going to be Holly. I'm going to recover like that. And I point that out only because now that I know Holly, I ended up finding her on Instagram and connecting with her. And this was at a moment in my recovery where I was supposedly fully recovered and still feeling essentially like crap and feeling very defeated. And I reached out to Holly because I was like, what is your secret? Like, how is it that you have recovered? I need to know because I'm still having so much nerve pain and I'm still so tired that I carrying a laundry basket upstairs, I'm tired, too tired to put the clothes away. Like, what is wrong with me like, that I cannot be like you, Holly? And she confided in me that she had all of those same symptoms that I had. And through our communication that's been ongoing, I've told her, hey, I have a new neurologist and now I'm getting IVIG every three weeks because it helps my symptoms. And she was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. Maybe I should talk to my neurologist about it. But that very public image that was out there Mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily what was really truly happening. And I'm a very open book. And I I think that used to be more private and more like, I can't let anybody know that I'm not perfect. But I have found that the more I let people know that I'm not perfect, the more they tell me, me too. And then it makes me feel normal. 
No, absolutely. And I think that's kind of the veil of social media, right? Like it's the highlights reel and you only see the best, most beautiful, amazing moments of a person's life. Absolutely. And I talk very candidly about things that are so embarrassing. Like I laugh at, you know, there were times in the hospital, I was like, I just shit the bed. I just crap my pants. Like, oh my gosh, like that's something I would never tell to anybody, you know? And the fact that everybody and their brother saw me naked while I was in the hospital, like including friends of mine who had to see things that they never should have seen. I'm so sorry. I will make a public apology right now to anybody that had to see that, you know, but you have to be real. And I think that that's something that I just feel has opened my eyes up to just about the human connection and about communication and like, why can't we all be real with each other? I, I, it's changed my life in so many ways. And I, I remember being in a wheelchair initially when I first was put in the wheelchair and my mom coming up and giving me a hug and I started crying and I, my mom goes, what's wrong? Am I hurting you? And I said, no, I just realized that nobody's hugged me in like three months. And I remember sitting in that wheelchair and telling my mom, I feel invisible. Like, I feel like I'm not at eye level with anybody else who's standing. People look past me. They they look at me like something's wrong with me, even though like cognitively there's nothing wrong with me. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like people treat me with respect. I feel invisible. And shortly after I got out of the hospital, I read an article about homeless people and how they often feel invisible and how they miss that human connection more than anything. And once I read that, I ended up deciding that it's become an annual tradition. I've done it two years in a row now on New Year's Eve is I go downtown with a friend of mine and we bring food and blankets and essential things that they need and not just, hey, here you go and dropping it off. It's actually talking to them and having conversations with them and saying, hey, nobody stopped to talk to me in months every single person I shook their hand and the ones that wanted it, I would give them a hug because I know how it felt not to be touched by people. And for people, I'm going to cry for people like to look at me in a wheelchair and be afraid to touch me for my own children to like be afraid to come and give me a hug. Their dad would be like, go give mommy a hug. And I was like, they don't want to hug me. And I see that with my own students. And I'm right now very fortunate that I'm covering um, a, a short time position in a high school district where some of my students are medically fragile and they're in wheelchairs and they have cognitive impairments and they have physical limitations that exceed what I had. And people are afraid of them. And I was talking to one of the nurses in the classroom the other day, and I was watching her and she was massaging one of the kids' feet. And I just stopped her and I said, I need to tell you that what you're doing for him, even though he can't communicate that to you, is so important. And you're doing more for him than you know. And I know for me personally, and I still feel this way, that I'm sometimes at a loss for what to do with those kids and those adults because you don't see the rapid progress that you see in other people and you're bound by these IEP goals that seem absolutely ridiculous because they're not, how do you measure them? And they're not making progress. And even though you have to have those goals, I have given myself some grace in knowing that even just talking to those students and touching them and, you know, laughing with them and treating them like normal people. Exactly. And, and loving them. Right. right. Giving them love. And I feel Absolutely. like at the end of the day, like that's way more important than any speech and language target we Absolutely. could ever dream of. And that's what I, I see the teachers and the parapros in this classroom and how much love they have for these kids. And it's a hard job. Like they physically have to lift these 
grown adults that are, you know, like infants. Mm -hmm. And I just give them so much credit and I'm watching with different eyes than I had used before. And I think when I used to work with more of the severely delayed population, it was more like in and out, like, okay, I'm meeting my minutes. And I was afraid. I was, I, I admit that I was afraid of those students. And now I'm not because I see myself when I look at them, when I see their feeding tubes and I see someone, you know, pushing their food through too fast because maybe they're in a hurry and they never had a feeding tube. I had to tell like my nurses, please slow down. You're hurting me. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's making me sick. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's totally fine. And honestly, like what you're saying is really resonating with me because, you know, when you work with medically fragile children, it's like, you know, you have to just like be there and really think about what you're doing. I think oftentimes, like you said, we just kind of go through the motions and we're like, well, I have to, you know, work on using the device today. And so like a child could come to school, feel terrible, feel super fatigued, have issues with, you know, their feeding tube or, you know, what have you. Exactly. 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 And that's what I said to one of the the nurses the other day was, I said, we don't even pay attention to the fact that, again, just breathing, keeping their bodies alive is so fatiguing. And then we're asking them to touch a communication device device to choose what color crayon they want. Like, Mm -hmm. who the hell cares? Like, you know, like, sorry, like, there's so much more important things in life than sometimes some of the really dumb rules that we have. Um, Again, I'm not advocating that we disregard those rules, but I really think that sometimes we need to reframe our mission and what our plan is for that particular person. Right, and and reprioritize, right? Let's prioritize the things that matter. And, you know, especially if we're working with medically fragile children, it's like, okay, like let's get their, their basic needs met at some level. They need to be on a good day. I I just, you know, was seeing a client and, you know, they had a really hard day and it was a big day because I had like another clinician coming to like observe to kind of, Mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out what is a good um, switch location for this little guy. And it's just like, it wasn't a good day. And like, I totally, you know, wanted to just like, like, let's just try again. You know, I really want like, there's all these people in the room, but it's like, if it's not a good day, it's not a good day. And unfortunately these kids, a lot of their days aren't good days. No, And that actually just triggered another memory for me that while I was in that first hospital, I was supposed to be getting five days a week of OT and PT and they were short staffed. And so they were not coming to provide the services that I needed. And I wasn't getting speech as often as I needed. And I was withering away to nothing. And I had to ask my friend who's a physical therapist, please come in and show my family how to move my body so that I don't lose any more muscle tone. Mm-hmm. And the days that I would end up getting OT and PT, it was always somebody different because they didn't have a system that they had at Barrow where I went, you know, the second hospital where I had a team of OTPT speech that only always saw me. It was somebody different every time. And there was one time I was having a really, really bad day and I wasn't feeling well. And that physical therapist came in and he wrote in his notes that he didn't think I could tolerate acute rehab. And that's what the insurance company latched onto. And we had to fight that because I didn't have that many notes in my file as it was because I wasn't getting the services 
but some man felt the need to say that he didn't think I could tolerate it. He didn't consider all those other parameters of how old I was and that I had young children. You have to think about that stuff. You have to think about what recommendations you're making. And my mom begged the person at the insurance company who was denying my claims. She was like begging him to think about how he would feel if this was his mom, his daughter, his wife. How would you feel if someone was denying that person transport to a facility that research has shown this person needs because you're trying to save money? Mm -hmm. You just have to be aware of that, that anything little like that, insurance companies will latch on to. So you better be damn well certain that what you're saying is best for that patient and that you actually know what you're talking about. Absolutely. Especially if you don't know the case, right? If you're kind of standing in and it's just a bird, it's just a glimpse. It's a glimpse of time. Oh man. And how many many present levels have you read that are two sentences long that don't give a complete picture of a student? I see it all the time, especially in those lower functioning, higher needs kids, because people don't know what to say about them or they don't want to admit that they haven't been making progress, excuse me, which If you're not admitting the right progress, then you're not doing anything for that kid because if they're not making progress, either the goal is inappropriate or your instructional methods are not appropriate, you know? So find a different way to do it, but do not keep saying that child's at 50%, 50%, 50%, and then not change their goal. Right. It's something needs to be done if, right. if it's not, if, if progress isn't being shown. Right. Um, there's something else, Carly, before we, before we wrap up and thank you so much for sharing your experience. This has been really amazing. Um, there's something else that really stood out in what you said, and you were talking about the communication system that you developed for yourself that worked. You said that one of the, your top words was sad. And I feel like that's so important to think about. That's what you wanted to communicate to the people that were around you, right? Like how Mm -hmm. you were feeling. And it's something that we just don't think about sometimes, especially with the children that, you know, we work with. It's like, oh, well, you know, emotions, they're not going to understand emotions. It's too abstract. It's too this, it's too that. And we really need to be affording everyone the opportunity to communicate how they feel because ultimately we want to be understood as human beings. And you have to assume that everybody gets sad every once in a while, you know, like exactly, especially if you're trapped in your own body. So Mm -hmm. again, even if that child can't communicate that assume that they're going to feel that at one point or another. And maybe you just taking time to talk to them or sing to them Mm -hmm. is going to make them happier. Exactly. And just, you know, that's how, that's how children learn. Mm -hmm. They learn through that experience and pairing that experience with the language. Um, And so I'm just a huge proponent of incorporating that as early as we possibly can. Absolutely. Um, Because it's, it's, it's a basic human right to be able to talk about how I feel because then the people around you can help lift you up. If you're feeling sad, I'm sure when you said that it was like, okay, like you need a little pep talk, like as we all do naturally sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And you were able to then feel um, a feel better. So I think it's so important and this can really guide us. Um, this has been a really amazing interview, Carly. And I really think it's such a great story that transcends any type of disability. You know, this helps inform all of us, no matter if we work with adults or we work with kids. Um, you know, you're really touching on key components to being a 
a really great therapist, not even just a speech language pathologist, a really great therapist and practitioner. And a person in general, you know, like when I saw that picture of that door with those 25 words, I use that as an impetus to like start a conversation on Facebook. And I ended it with like, you know, if you only had 25 words or phrases, what would you choose? Because so often the words that we're choosing are hurting other people, or we feel like we can say whatever we want from behind the safety of a keyboard, um, or we're not vulnerable um, to admit things. And I just think that when you are limited in what you can and cannot communicate, it becomes even more powerful of what a, a tool communication is. Absolutely. So there's one question that we ask all of the guests that we have on our show. If you had a billboard that every SLP saw, what would your billboard say? Oh my goodness. You're stumping me right now. Um, what would my billboard say? I, I, I think that I'll go back to just individualizing everything, you know, even like we talk about the, a core board with words on it, it's going to be different for everybody. Nobody, I would never have thought to give someone the word sad, but mm -hmm. I just think we go back to what we do as clinicians, that there is no one size fits all therapies. Maybe that's my billboard. One mm -hmm. size fits all therapy is not a thing. Yeah. Um, there is no one size fits no, all. <laughs> everything needs to be um, individualized. And I had that firsthand experience. So yeah. You make a really great point. You know, we really need to think about how we can create customized vocabularies that have personally relevant vocabulary on them, right? right? It's not, we can't just use the template on the device that we, you know, decide to choose for a student. Right. Um, and that's, if you ever go into a hospital room and you look around, if there's a communication board, it is so generic. And that's what they're like, here you go, Carly. I'm like, I don't want that. Exactly. You know? And that's, we have speech pathologists that are working in those hospitals that probably don't do a lot with assistive technology on a regular basis. They're more like feeding, swallowing type of things. And so if you're working in a hospital and there are communication boards, you should probably be getting in those rooms and looking at them and seeing if they really are functional. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, sure, take a template but then you need to customize it. Right. Um, and I think that's something that's really, you know, important across all ages and, right. uh, you know, disabilities. So Carly, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so wonderful. Um, what's next for you? What are you up to? I know you do a lot of speaking engagements and you're really trying to Actually, yeah. Um, I didn't even talk about that. I wrote an article for the ASHA leader shortly after I got out of the hospital. Someone reached out to me and asked me to write it and it was all about the patient perspective. And then from there, I was very humbled to receive lots of emails from people across the country. Um, and that's where I've been asked to speak at different universities and at state conventions. And I just this week got asked to speak at East Carolina University and not just to the speech program, but to all of their associated medical programs um, about that patient perspective. And it's I was, I'm very honored because I don't consider myself an expert in anything like that. But just being able to tell my story like you've been allowed me to do today is very therapeutic for me. And I will continue to do that and hopefully reach lots of people, but I'm also going to continue to check things off my own bucket list and goal list. And that's something too that I decided for myself last year on the year anniversary that April 9th was never going to be a date 
that I was going to fear or um, be upset about, that I was going to use April 9th as a day to celebrate life-changing perspective that most people never have the opportunity to have. And so I decided I would do something on my bucket list every year. And last year, um, I decided I would take piano lessons and never played an instrument in my life and became um, a student to a teacher. My daughter goes to the piano teacher as well. I'm the only adult in the class, and we just had our first recital. And I was able to do that right before my second year anniversary. And then my second year anniversary, I decided that I was going to do a hot air balloon ride because I've always wanted to do that. And I actually took my friend Kara with me, who also had the beret. And I just said it was very symbolic because I've said that Yambre has changed my perspective on everything and that going in a hot air balloon ride was going to change my perspective on how I actually literally viewed Earth. It was really fun. So we did that last weekend and um, it was very peaceful and I won't do it again. We had a crash landing. So (laughs) yeah, it was funny. Kara and I were like, oh my gosh, like, you know, here we survived Yambre only to die in this freak you know, hot air balloon accident, but we, we apologized the people that were in our balloon because we said, you know what, maybe it's us because the odds of, uh, you know, getting Guillain-Barre are one in 100,000. So maybe nobody should be around us, you know, or something like that. But Oh, well, I, I love that. I love, I think it's important to really turn lemons into lemonade. Um, it's really easy to just kind of, like you said, get down and out and just stay there. Yeah. Um, but clearly that's not what you've done. And we all can now learn from your experience. And um, I know I speak on behalf of all of our listeners um, when we say thank you so much for sharing. Um, I know it's not easy to put your out there and to maybe show some parts of your experience that weren't as glamorous, but um, it's really important for us to, to get the whole story because I think it really informs our practice in a really beneficial way. I absolutely agree. And I will only be candid about it because it's, like I said, I've been assigned this mountain to show others it can be moved. And I think it'd be very detrimental to the community of people with illnesses like this to say, everything's great. My life is perfect because that gives them hopes of getting to something that's not attainable. And that's what I found out is you have to continue to, to give yourself some grace, knowing that you're a person with a chronic health issue and you're going to have days where you're going to be tired. And even if you're a type A person, you need to listen to your body and allow it to, to rest and to say no when you need to say no. Uh, well, you are truly an inspiration, Carly. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for all of our, our listeners, um, you know, please, please, please join our Facebook group. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, um, just search for Talking With Tech so more people find this podcast. Um, thank you again, Carly, for coming on. And please, if any of your listeners out there want more information or want to get in contact with me, I have a public Facebook page. It's called GBS, Carly Recovering Like a Champ and Looking Good Doing It. Find me on Facebook and I'd be happy to you know have more conversations with you absolutely and we will definitely link to those uh, in the show notes so people can find you carly when um if they want to they talk more um of course if they have guillain beret um i think it would be an amazing resource um thank you so much again for coming on carly you're welcome and i hope that your mom is doing well too she is actually so she she has not had a single episode she has some um she has pretty severe epilepsy that happened after the young beret mm-hmm. um that she has to manage through lots of medication uh-huh. but um you know she, and she she has uh issues with balance and her feet um, oh, yeah. so i could definitely relate to that she can't yeah. really wear sandals or flip-flops um uh-huh. it's really challenging yeah. for her i have sandals and flip-flops that i can wear now but in the beginning i was like i wore tennis shoes with dresses all the time, you know, because I was not aware of where my feet were. 
I'm still yeah. not, but yeah, yeah, it's it's so interesting. Yeah, I'm so happy that you reached out, um, and I'm so happy that we're able to to connect. Um, so for talking with tech, I'm Rachel Needle. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next week. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.